Imagine if you guys had actually cut down all your fossil fuel emissions. Not, an, uh, not a car anywhere, not a power plant anywhere, uh, not any mu very much food. Uh, a lot of what we're doing here today would be impossible. But imagine if you'd actually done it. If you'd done this that no other country on earth has managed to do. Imagine you'd done it already in 2012 when the first carbon tax was proposed. Imagine you were the country that had led the world, cut all carbon emissions in 2012. You'd cut it also in 2013, 2014, up to 2020, 2021, 2022, all the way to 2100. With a lot of years, lots of effort. It would have a huge cost, but you'd really have done something for the climate. What would have been the impact on the area burnt? I, I actually tried to do this, but I can't because you can't see it. I can't make the graph. I can't make this thin enough so you could actually see it. But let me just tell you, right now we expect that we'll get 6% by the end of the century. If Australia had gone carbon neutral in 2012, and every year since, the biggest achievement of any nation ever anywhere, instead of 6%, you would have reached by 2100, 5.997. Percent. Congratulations. You have just spent an enormous amount of resources to achieve absolutely nothing. That's not the way, I think, to honor the people who perished and who have had terrible tragedies from the bushfires this year. We are not likely to honor them well by saying we want to help them by making incredibly expensive policies that will have absolutely no impact next year, absolutely no impact in the decade, absolutely no impact by 2050, oh, and absolutely no impact in 100 years. That seems like almost the opposite of trying to honor them. So I would argue, if we want to have this conversation, we need to know this, we need to have the facts, and we need to have this conversation. Look, global warming is real but many of the things you hear are dramatically exaggerated. So why is it we get it so wrong on global warming? I would argue to a very large extent it's because we miss adaptation. So look, how many people die every year from global warming? We have good data for this. I'm gonna show you how many people die every year over the last 100 years. If you look at and if you listen to the media debate, you'd imagine that this graph would be going like this, right? More and more people are dying. Actually, you'd be phenomenally wrong. This is what has happened with climate deaths. So floods, drought, storms, wildfire, and extreme temperatures since the 1920s have dropped from about half a million people every year to now around 18,000 people. Over the last 100 years, we have seen a civilization that has gone from half a million people die every year to 18,000 every year. That's a reduction of 96%. Remember, at the same time, we've quadrupled global population. So what actually has happened is, per person, we've reduced risks by 99%. This has almost nothing or nothing to do with climate. This has everything to do with the fact that we've become much richer, much better able to tackle climate and other problems. But this also shows that this is not the end of the world. When, when Gutierrez is telling us, oh no, we're all gonna die. No, that's actually not what the data tells us. Fewer and fewer people are gonna die. This does not mean that if we tackle global warming 
maybe even fewer people would die. That's a good point. We can still do good with climate, but this is not an existential crisis that we are battling our way out of. Let me show you another graph. Um, this is an obvious argument of saying, as temperatures rise, sea levels are going to rise. As sea levels rise, more people are going to get flooded. That sounds pretty simple, and that's certainly what a lot of people say. Let's just look at the facts. Right now, or actually in 2000, these are models, because we don't actually have good evidence for this for, for globally. It's very, very hard to get the right numbers. So these are based on nine different models. They're all international periods. So these are the best numbers that we have. We estimate that about 3.4 million people get flooded every year. It has a cost of 11 billion. I should just say all of these numbers are US dollars. Um, we also have a cost of about $13 billion of dike cost. And that means the total cost of global flooding is 0.05% of GDP. That's a problem. Remember, that means it's also a very small part of the global economy. What will happen in a world where we have worst case warming, the highest population, and the highest GDP growth? In that worst case world of warming, if we don't do anything, what will happen? Well, not surprisingly, as temperatures rise and as sea level rise, we're going to see more and more people being drowned almost, right? We'll have 187 million people flooded. This number was brandished in Washington Post and Wall Street Journal and pretty much all papers around the world as, oh my God, 187 million people are going to die. Of course, they're not actually going to die. They'll need to move. Uh, but still, yeah, you'll be very, very silly to be standing there for 80 years and watch you know, the waves lap up over your feet and say, ooh, if I don't move in 80 years, I'm going to drown. But if we have this no adaptation, 187 million people are going to get flooded. This will cost us $55 trillion every year. That's a huge cost. Uh, we'll be paying $24 trillion billion in dike costs. That means the total cost, because we'll be much richer by 2100, is 5.3% of GDP. That's a huge cost. But what is the one thing that's really, really unrealistic? It is that ever more rich countries decide to say, so, sea levels are rising. Yeah, but we're not going to change our dikes. We're not going to do anything about that. No, no, no. I know it's all flooded, and I know you all hate it, but there you are. We're not going to do anything about it. We're not going to adapt. Of course we're going to adapt. I mean, Holland did this 100 years ago, right? We know how to adapt to sea level rise. We know how to do that almost everywhere. If we assume that all nations are instead going to do what is economically efficient adaptation, here's what's happened. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't see it. But basically, we're going to get to almost nothing. So as much richer countries by 2100 are going to see sea levels, we will have 15,000 people being flooded every year, not 187 million people. I'll give you one guess as to which one of these made the headlines. <laughs> it was 187, and this happens all the time. This is a model that has been replicated many, many times. It always gives 187 million, and it's been brandished at least since 2011. You always hear the 187 million. You never hear that the realistic outcome is 15,000. Now, there will be higher costs, absolutely mostly because we actually have a lot more stuff to get damaged. There will be much higher dike costs because we actually have to keep increasing. We have to repair them much more. 
But notice the total cost of GDP will go down, not up. We today spend 0.05% of our GDP in 2100 with worst case warming, we're actually gonna be spending less, not more. How's that possible? It is because when you're richer, you're much better able to deal with problems. Not all kinds of problems, but also flooding. That's the simple point, and we keep forgetting this. This is, of course, why if you ask what's the total global cost of climate damages, we only have good numbers since 1990, it's not that they're going up, it's that they're going down. It used to be that costs oh, were about 0.26% of GDP, now it's down to 0.18% of GDP. I don't think any of us feel that this is what we hear in the newspapers. Today, again, or this year again, climate costs went down. That's not what we hear, but that's what the facts tell us. Again, we need to understand that we're being told one part of the equation. Oh my God, it cost this many billions. Yes, it did, but we were also much richer and actually in total, we saw less damage, not more. Why is it then that we don't just say, all right, maybe Bjorn is right. Maybe global warming is not that big of a problem, but still, it, yeah, it's a, a sizable issue. Why don't we just get rid of fossil fuels? Well, remember that we don't burn fossil fuels to annoy Al Gore, right? We do it because it basically powers everything we like about civilization. So look at this. This is the history of renewables in, in a very quick version, right? In 1800, we got 94% of all energy from renewables. The next 170 years, we spent getting rid of renewables because they're, they're hard to use and they're certainly very, very diffuse. We basically tried to get to the Industrial Revolution. The last 50 years, we've stayed pretty much at 13 to 14% of renewables. Almost all of this is poor world using dung and cardboard and wood inside their homes, which kills them immensely. We're still today at 14%. If you look at the projections, I'll first show you the International Energy Agency. If we do everything we promised in Paris, we will now get it up to about 20%. More realistically, we'll probably get to about 16 17%. .5, and if we look at the UN scenarios that go all the way up to 2100, they find even in the most optimistic scenario, the greenest, the most sustainable scenario, we will still only get 45% of our energy from renewables by the end of the century. So just notice this, from 1950 to 2050, it's likely that we had a higher proportion of energy from renewables in 1950 than we'll get even by 2050. And certainly, it is true that most of what you are being told that we'll go renewable by 2030 or 2050 is just simply wishful thinking. Uh, Jim Hansen, the guy who, is, uh, who started the whole global warming worry in, in 1988 when he testified in front of Al Gore's Congress, he's also Al Gore's climate uh, advisor. He put it very memorably, I, say, uh, I think, when he said that people who believe that we're likely to be able to swiftly go to renewables either in China, US, and Europe, or anywhere in the world are doing a little bit like believing in the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny. Just not gonna happen. 
And that's important to recognize. Why? Because it is very, very costly. And that's, of course, why we are likely to see that not only will climate cost, but climate policy will also cost. That's why we need to start talking about, so what should we actually do? Well, this is from the UN Climate Panel uh, report, and this has been updated by uh, uh, Nordhaus, who, uh, uh, who is the only uh, uh, economist in the world uh, to have uh, gotten the uh, Nobel Prize in climate economics. These are all the studies. Uh, out here is the temperature increase, so zero, two, four, up to 10 degrees. And here is the impact on the global economy. So basically, these all studies, the bigger uh, uh, circles are better studies, if you will, newer studies, typically. Uh, and this is what Nordhaus estimate the best regression through here. Uh, so this is what he ex expects. So a four degree temperature rise will cost about 3% of GDP loss. This is a problem by no means the end of the world. He also actually uh, adds 25% uh, because it's unlikely that we have estimated all, uh, all uh, negative impacts. Uh, so this is actually what I'm gonna be showing you when we do the cost-benefit analysis for climate policies. So he has already looked at this. We know what the cost is. This is why when Gutierrez come out and say, this could be the most dangerous thing for the global economy, no. By the end of the century, we're likely to see three, three and a half percent damages. That's certainly something we'd like to avoid. But we've got to ask, how much will climate policies cost? So this is Nordhaus, again, the world's only climate economist who got the Nobel Prize. This is his model, but there's lots of other models that essentially show about the same. So if we don't do anything, we're likely by the end of the century to see 4.1 degree temperature rise. How much will that cost? Well, his policy shows that. It's about $140 trillion. This is actually the average of the cost over the next five centuries. Uh, so $140 trillion. If we get to 3.75 degrees, it'll cost a little less. If we get to three degrees, 2.5 degrees, uh, actually he finds that we can't get to two degrees. It's just physically impossible, but that hasn't stop the, the, uh, the politicians from promising, but let's just get to the very lowest that he believes you can get, 2.15 degrees, obviously the lowest damage impact, which is just $40 trillion. So this is the picture that we're typically being presented with, not ne nearly as clearly, but, but, but certainly if we don't do anything, lots of cost. If we do something, much lower cost. This would seem to indicate we should just go for the lowest, right? I mean, clearly, this is better than this. It's not really rocket science, right? Let's get the lowest cost, because this is obviously preferable. But it forgets that there's also a cost to the policy. So let me just show you the climate policy cost. Now, I'm first going to show you what's the co cost of the no policy. Oh, nothing. Right? There's obviously no policy cost if we don't do anything. If we do a little bit, if we go for the 3.75, and remember, this is assuming that all nations, slightly incompetently, that's what we've seen in the past, try to do the best policies to get to 3.75. Then the cost is about, oh, I can't really see that. I, I know that. That's $20, $25 trillion, right? Three degrees, it's about $100 trillion. 2.5 degrees, it's a little more than $250 trillion. And if you go for the lowest one, it costs $350 trillion. 
The point is, you have to pay both. You both have to pay the cost from climate. We have to do that. But you also have to pay the cost for the climate policy. So you have to add the two. So here are the costs that I just showed you. These are the climate costs. But then we have to add the climate policy cost. On the first one, we add zero. On the next one, we add the 20. On the third one, we add the 100. And then we add more and more. What is the best climate policy here? Yes, it's this one, right? The 3.75. This is what he got the Nobel Prize for. You don't have to do more than this, and then you get a Nobel Prize, right? But <laughs> there's a little bit more stuff behind this, right? But the fundamental point here is this is not rocket science. Why is it we can't have this as our conversation on what should we be doing? The fundamental point here is to say you both have to pay the cost of actual policies, and you have to pay the cost of climate. You have to pay both. Let's make sure we leave the world with the least cost. That turns out to be 3.75 degrees. That is a lot less ambitious than what most climate activists will tell you. They will say, we should go for this. But that's because they only think about the climate cost. What we need to get into the conversation is what is the realistic climate policy cost as well. So, if I'll just show you this in a different way. This is the total welfare of the world over the next five centuries. Only economists do that, right? But you know, if you want to buy the, uh, the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and 25th century, you have to pay about $4,500 trillion. So any takers? But anyway, so this is, this is just simply for, for, uh, to, to make this very clear. Most of this is going to go to welfare. If we don't do anything up here, no policy, we'll have a climate and climate policy loss of 3%. This is the 3% that didn't go for human welfare. Part of it was, um, well, all, all of it, sorry, was from climate loss. We had more hurricanes. We had worse weather in many ways. It cost us about 3% of our GDP. That's a big problem. But still, we had 97% left over, right? If we do the smart policy, that's this one, we can actually achieve 2.6% of climate and climate policy loss. That means we have 97.4% left over for humanity. And as you can see down here, we have more and more loss here and less and less welfare. This, I think, is the most important point. If we do climate right, we can actually add 0.4% of global welfare to humanity over the next five centuries. I want to be part of that movement that makes sure we leave an extra 0.4% to humanity. That's great. But if we do this badly, we can easily end up costing humanity 5% or more. The reality here is we can do a little good and we can do a lot of bad. Let's make sure we're not the guys who ended up doing a lot of bad, but did a little good. That's what we need to do. And that's what he basically tells us in Nordhaus, how do you do that? So fundamentally, the policies that we've tried to do so far don't work for a lot of different reasons. Uh, so you know, the Paris Agreement, done almost nothing. It's very costly. Notice the UNFCCC, so the guys who actually organized the Paris Agreement, they say that the total impact of the Paris Agreement is to cut 
gigatons of CO2 by 2030. For most people, this means absolutely nothing. But if you translate it into temperature, it's the equivalent of reducing temperature by the end of the century by 0 0.029 degrees centigrade. So instead of seeing 4.1 degrees, we're going to see an amazing reduction down to 4.071 degrees. Congratulations, world. So when people tell you the Paris Agreement is this magnificent creature that will safeguard all of humanity, no, it's not. It'll do a tiny, trivial bit by the end of the century. And the cost will be somewhere between $1 and $2 trillion a year. We estimate that every dollar spent on climate uh, on the Paris Agreement will avoid about 11 cents of climate damage. That's a poor way of spending resources, spending a dollar and only doing 11 cents of good. If we do Paris for the rest of the century, it will reduce temperatures by the end of the century by 0.17 degrees. And it will cost us somewhere between 60 and $120 trillion in cost. Also, we're not doing anything. The UNEP, the environmental program from the UN, actually, and very surprisingly, called uh, the 2010s a decade lost. They told us that the emissions that they have seen over the 2010s look almost exactly the level of emissions projected for 2020 under the business as usual or no policy scenario. So basically, we can't tell the difference between the scenario where nobody did anything and reality. That should make us pause a little bit. So we have tried for three decades to make climate policy, and we've managed to do virtually nothing. If I'll just show you very quickly, up here, these are some of the policies that we can do. The EU 2020 policy is one of the best studied policies. That's what uh, Europe has promised to do by 2020. The total cost is about $400 billion a year, US billion dollars. It'll have virtually no impact. We estimate the total benefit will be about three cents back on every dollar. The Paris Agreement, as I just mentioned, will deliver $11 back on the dollar. The smart global carbon tax, and that was what Tom uh, mentioned before, uh, a smart global carbon tax can actually do good. Now, it's going to be very hard to implement, but it can actually reduce temperatures a little bit, as we saw. It can get us back to about 3.75 degrees, and it can actually do some good. It can give us back that 0.4 percentage point of uh, global GDP, but it will also cost us a lot. So let's absolutely make sure we do this, but let's make clear this is not what's going to solve global warming. However, what will solve global warming is innovation. We've actually done studies that show if you focus on innovation, you can get much, much more for less money. Why is that? Because if we could innovate down new green energy to be cheaper than fossil fuels, we'd have solved global warming. If we could make green energy that was cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone would switch. Not just rich, well-meaning Australians or everyone else in the rich world, but everyone, Chinese, Indians, everybody else would switch. So if we invest a lot more in innovation, that would both be much cheaper than the current approach and it would be much more effective. This is the way that we can actually fix climate change. I have a whole other bit on what are the smart things for the world, but I think I'm over time, am I? Ain't I? So I should probably just stop here. So fundamentally, look, global warming is real, but you're often being sold it's a lot worse, and 
we actually don't have good data for that. And you're being told that the way to fix, for instance, bushfires and many other things is by cutting carbon emissions. It'll actually probably be one of the least effective ways to help the future. If we want to do smart, absolutely let's have a carbon tax. By far invest in green energy R&D because we know that that is the way that we can actually solve global warming. But also, let's just remember, the best outcome we can get for global warming is that we manage to make humanity 0.4% richer over the next five centuries. That's good. But if we don't get it right, we can end up making five or even more percent less well off. That's terrible. So we really have to be careful, and we are not right now, on climate change. And I think that's why we need to have this conversation. I'm really happy you're here, so I'm looking very much forward to having this conversation with you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. We'll take some questions very... Thank you. We'll take some questions very soon. Yes. But look, I just want to talk about that graph that was astonishing about the bushfires in Australia since the early 1900s because the overwhelming conventional wisdom in the media has been that the scope and the intensity of these bushfires, which started in Queensland in September, were relatively early, ripping through Victoria and New South Wales in December and January, um, these, and then of course we had the smoky towns, and especially Sydney and in Melbourne, these were unprecedented. And it's not a view you'll just hear at The Guardian and the ABC and the Sydney Morning Herald, but also the Financial Review. Why are they wrong? Well, so they're not wrong in that they're unprecedented, certainly for New South Wales. As I understand, it's never burnt more in, in, in recorded history. Uh, and in Victoria, it's a long time ago since it burnt this much. So they're unprecedented in some ways. They're certainly dangerous because they've happened where a lot of people live. So they're different. But again, if you want to paint, paint this as a climate issue, you have to accept that the climate models tell us that almost all vegetation shapes, not the uh, tropical savanna up in the north, and I've also done the same numbers and this show the same thing, uh, if you, sorry, but fundamentally, it has burned a lot less in many other places. This doesn't matter so much for humans because it's mostly not burnt where nobody's there, so nobody really cares whether it burns or not. But it matters if you're gonna paint this as global warming. And of course, the real point here is to say, even if you did a lot of climate policy, you'd have almost no impact. Yeah. And you're not alone here. CIS is bringing out uh, Johan Norberg, the distinguished Swedish intellectual, later this year. And he makes the point that, among other things, that we had just as many extreme weather events in the past, but more people died from those extreme yeah. weather events than they do today. And if you look at these fires, terrible as they are, 40, 50 people, it's uh, still a significant drop-off from uh, the bushfires 10 years ago in Victoria, uh, Ash Wednesday, 1983. But look, the Prime Minister's feeling the heat, no pun intended. This is what Phil Curry says in the Financial Review. The Prime Minister no longer talks about climate change being one of many factors, including drought, which are contributing to the severity and duration of the fire season. Mr Morrison now claims, clearly, the fires are a product of climate change and no longer claims drought to be an unrelated factor. Curry goes on to say... In mapping a path driven by technology and market forces towards clean and reliable energy, your line, Morrison said we could not continue to rely on sweating old coal-fired power plants and stations and that the slightly cleaner gas must be the transition fuel until really clean sources of energy are reliable enough. Bjorn Lomborg. Well, so there's a number of things going on here. Uh, again, we're all being told that this is the line that you have to tow. You have to say... More uh, fires are because of global warming. 
And if you don't say that, you're going to get criticized endlessly. I totally understand why you'd want to say as a politician, all right, okay, and we're actually doing something about it. But the fundamental fact remains that we cannot see the impact from global warming on fires now. Actually, a very influential review that was just published like three months ago uh, across all fire knowledge says that in Australia, we won't be able to tell that there is an impact from global warming before the 2030s or 2040s. We're not there yet. And so that's not what the science tells us. Also, even if you do cut, you'll have virtually no impact. I think, I, I would imagine that it's a good idea to do some of the things that the Prime Minister says, because remember, the impact of cutting carbon emissions is not just on cutting bushfire in Australia. It has a lot of other beneficial impacts. That's why we should try to aim for 3.75 degrees. But it is not the arguments that he was making, and certainly not the argument that we're making to the Australian people, telling them, look, if we cut carbon emissions, we're all going to be fine, and there's going to be no bushfire. That's just simply wrong to make that argument, mm -hmm. and, and quite frankly, dangerous. And we should stress that one of the reasons why he won the 2019 election was that he carried Queensland, and uh, one of the reasons why he carried Queensland was on this very issue of coal. Now, your central argument has long been that why spend so much tax dollars on fighting global warming when there are more pressing problems around the world that we should be uh, focused on? Many climate scientists say that the worst effects of climate change are likely to be in Asia and Africa, especially among the poorer people. How would you respond to that? Well, that's absolutely true. Look, global warming harms the poor the most. Actually, most problems harm the poor the most. So clearly, global warming will harm the poor the most for, for a number of different reasons, but also typically because poor live where it's already pretty down hot. So if it gets worse, hotter, it will actually be an extra stressor. But again, the question is, how do you actually help people who are suffering from many different things, but mostly from poverty? Do you help them by cutting carbon emissions, or do you help them by getting them out of poverty? And the simple answer is, you help them so much more getting out of poverty. So I don't know if you guys remember, there was a hurricane back in 2000, uh, 2013 in Haiyan yep. in the Philippines. Uh, it happened just uh, when there was a, a big UN climate meeting. Uh, so a lot of people said, see, we got to do something for these poor people in, 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 in the Philippines. We got to you know, stop using our car, cut a ton of carbon emissions. There, there's something phenomenally absurd about saying, I'm going to help those poor people in the Philippines. I'm going to not drive my car tomorrow. That's really going to help them. No, it's not. If you want to help them, these people live under corrugated roofs in terrible conditions. If you help them get out of poverty, not only would it have immense benefits for their health and their poverty and their kids' education and many other things, but they'd also become much more resilient and much more able to handle the hurricanes that have always traveled over that path. Now, they may be slightly stronger in 100 years, but if they're also 20 or 30 or 40 times richer, they will be much more thankful that you actually help them escape But poverty. your critics would respond and say that uh, global warming will hurt the broader effort to, uh, to produce sustainable uh, development. Uh, you had a piece in the New York Times a few years ago, uh, and it was uh, titled um, Cheap Fossil Fuels for the Poor. This was in the New York Times, and in response they ran a letter from a climate scientist saying, quote, the path to global development on which providing energy access to all is a critical step is incalculably longer and steeper in a world where climate change goes unchecked. 
the increased frequency of storms, floods, heat waves and other effects of climate change will fundamentally undermine our efforts to promote sustainable economic growth. Mm. Doesn't that contradict your argument? Well, it certainly does. That's why he wrote it, but it's wrong. <laughs> um, so so there's, a, there's a number of things here uh, we have to remember. Uh, one is that, that a lot of people will sort of assume that the alternative is that we actually manage to do everything you know, all the most well-meaning people say. I just showed you that for the last 30 years, for the last three decades, people have claimed this is the biggest problem in the world, we should do everything at it, and we have not seen any change. The UN can't tell the difference between what we promised, sorry, uh, a world where we didn't do anything, and the current world. So we're not actually fixing global warming. I'm su uh, suggesting something that would actually fix global warming, but much more smartly because it's much cheaper and much more likely to be effective. But the second thing is, so a lot of people, uh, well-meaning people in the first world, will tell us, no, no, you've got to transition to solar panels. Uh, we actually did a study for Bangladesh uh, when, we were doing, uh, when we were advising the Bangladeshi government. Uh, look, this is a very poor country, uh, and they have lots of lack of energy access. Uh, so they're thinking about producing, uh, putting up a lot more coal-fired power plants. If they do that, it will cost about half a billion dollars in climate damages. That's real. Those are real costs. But it will also generate, and this is models from, uh, uh, from, uh, from UC Berkeley, uh, it'll generate benefits worth about $250 billion. It'll actually make every Bangladeshi mm. about 16% richer by 2030. Do you think they want that? Yes, they definitely want that. And there's something incredibly hypocritical, almost you know, uh, 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 colonialist, about saying, I'm sorry, uh, you have to forego this, this incredible benefit to avoid this rather small climate problem. Now, Al Gore did that after we'd done the uh, study. He, he basically to told Sheikh Hasina, who's the prime minister of Bangladesh, he told, you can't build those, those uh, power plants. She said, what the, you know, she didn't, she put it nicer. <laughs> yeah. uh, but she basically said, what are you gonna do? We want to lift our people out of poverty. Are you gonna tell them that they can't come out of poverty? So the fundamental point here is to recognize, do we want to make people poor, but slightly less badly off in 2100? Or do we want to make them much, much better off, make their kids much better off, have much better opportunities in almost any ways, and also fix climate change, but smartly. I would argue the yeah. latter, and I think most people seem to be suggesting, no, we should go down the path of the former. You know, Bjorn, uh, in uh, late 2015, on the eve of the Paris climate talks, uh, I debated a lady named uh, Naomi Klein, a climate enthusiast from Canada. Yep. I was at the Opera House, and her argument was we need to get rid of capitalism to decarbonise yep. the global economy. And my point, and of course you had the audience in, a, in the tip of a hand, palm of a hand, and I made the point that if you do that, you're going to really hurt efforts by developing nations' leaders to reduce poverty and grow their economy. And the cheapest way of doing that for the foreseeable future is on the back of carbon energy. And I got rowdy booed for that, but that's essentially your argument. But your critics would come back to you and say, Tim Flannery, for example, he told Tim... Um, Tony Jones from the ABC's Late Line, that if we want to divert dollars away uh, uh, from programs to help the poor, uh, why, why do it on climate change? Why not do it, say, for the military? This was Flannery's argument. Oh, and I'm all for that. Try and convince uh, Trump to, uh, to reduce the uh, military budget. Absolutely. I, I'd, I'd love to see that. 
But it doesn't take away from the fact that military budgets are not normally seen, I actually think Americans think that, but that's not true. It's not normally seen as a way to do good in the world, mm -hmm. right? You don't have an Australian military because you want to help the world. You have an Australian military because you want to help Australia, just like you have a lot of hospitals in Australia because you want to help Australians. You have a lot of spending in Australia for Australians and Americans for Americans and Danes for Danes and so on. But then we have some money that we spend on trying to do good for the world. Mm. This is development money. It's also climate money. Remember, any ton cut here in Australia will not mostly help Australians. It'll help everyone else. It's mostly a do-good effort. You're trying to say, look, we're going to take some cost here in Australia, but we'll deliver some benefits in terms of less climate damage in the, uh, in the future for the world. So I think Tim Flannery is very wrong, and he knows this because we've talked about it, but you know, that doesn't mean he <laughs> won't say it again. Uh, but you know, fundamentally, it is not the correct comparison to say, oh, you should take the money from military. Of course, you know, if you can, brilliant. But the point is, we're spending money on trying to help the world with climate, with peacekeeping forces, with you know, uh, research into obscure uh, tropical diseases, and with our development aid. This is money that we spend ostensibly to try to make the world a better place. I want to ask, why don't we spend it where it would do the most good rather than where okay, it would do the least good? Okay, but on that note, though, the, uh, the international business climate does appear to be changing. The World Bank and others are moving... Yes public finance away from coal-fired power, although it must be stressed that the China-led Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is supporting coal-fired power plants, particularly in Southeast Asia. Big investors, meanwhile, are, highlight, are highlighting their exit from uh, coal, and the EU is considering a carbon border tax on countries mm. such as Australia if we don't have a pricing mechanism put in place. So given all of that, does that put you on the back foot? Well, <laughs> uh, being right doesn't put you on the back foot. It, it, it means that uh, there's certainly a big, strong argument against being smart. We seem to have decided, no, 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 let's just be idiots in climate. And hey, I mean, if we want to do that, that's, you know, that's our democratic right. Uh, and, and this conversation and many others like this is simply about trying to say, could we be a little less dumb about this? Uh, so when you say, for instance, we've got to stop uh, funding coal-fired uh, coal power plants, uh, sure, the best way to do that is to make other technologies cheaper. If solar was cheaper than, you know, uh, than coal, and look, for India, some places it is, and they will be buying more solar. But to the extent that, that coal is still much cheaper for many places, it's really, really hard to tell these people to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't have that. You've got to go with the more expensive and less reliable uh, approach. So my point is not to say, I'm, uh, first of all, I don't own shares in any coal companies, and I, we don't take money from fossil fuel companies. But fundamentally, the point is we need to get to a world where it is much cheaper to use renewables or green energy of some sort, rather than a world where we tell people you can't use what is cheapest. Yeah. And so this is why we, need, we come back to saying we need to focus on innovation rather than just okay, this What about the, say, the European Union's uh, ploy to impose a carbon border tax on countries that don't conform yep. to their expect to Brussels' expectations? So, yep. so for the American, how would a Donald Trump respond to that? I mean, aren't there, uh, aren't, I don't know. Aren't, aren't, there, aren't there unintended consequences yeah, I'm not sure of being morally else. pure but, but, on punishing countries that yes. don't tow Brussels' yes. line on climate so, so policy? 
there, there is an argument. So again, I, I support uh, just like, Al, uh, sorry, not Al Gore, uh, like uh, Nordhaus, uh, uh, the Nobel laureate in climate economics, that a climate tax, carbon tax can be a smart way to allocate resources away. You know, fundamentally there's an externality that is not priced in. A carbon tax can do that. And if you argue this smartly, you can actually also use the trade uh, 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 tool to get more buy-in globally. However, the benefit that you obtain is very small and the risk that you essentially throw the baby out with bathwater is very, very high that you end up stalling free trade instead. Free trade, remember, lifts many, many more people out of poverty, helps the world incredibly much more. And the kinds of things that the EU is proposing, while technically and very, very well done, could potentially be good, is likely to, I, you, know, you can very easily imagine some French farmers saying, didn't they actually put a little more CO2 in that? <laughs> and you know, basically saying, could you raise the tax so they're not gonna compete with us? And every, it's not because French farmers are particularly bad, everybody would like to do this. So essentially that it's gonna be used to, to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, reduce free trade and hence make the world a lot less rich. That would be terrible. Yeah. So I think there's a real risk that it'll end up being much worse then it's good. What about international agreements? You mentioned Rio, 1992, yep. Kyoto yep. in 97, which did not include the developing countries. Yes. Copenhagen in 2009, which failed. completely failed. Yep. Uh, Kevin Rudd memorably blamed those rat efforts from China. Um, and then, of course, 2015, though, the Paris Climate Change Accords. Uh, Barack Obama, the president, said they were a historic breakthrough. Thomas Friedman, the Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist from the New York Times, said they were a big, big deal. Your argument is that Paris has failed. Why, when it was an international agreement that consisted of the developing countries? So, it, it's, a, it's an agreement where basically we asked everyone to come up and say, what do you want uh, to promise? And then we stapled all of those promises together and say, yay, success. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, it's better than nothing. Uh, but there's two things. First of all, it doesn't, it, it'll cost a lot, mostly because there are a lot of rich countries made absurdly expensive like, promises. Like a hundred billion dollars a year for the developing country from 2020 onwards, for example. For, sorry, sorry uh, my estimate says that it'll end up costing about one to two trillion dollars per Oh no, year. but wasn't this one of the commitments that the, the, oh, the sorry, developing yes, countries? Sorry. Yeah. Yes, we've also promised, I don't know if you remember, uh, we promised all the developing countries uh, to give them a hundred billion dollars a year uh, by 2020. That's now. Uh, and of course, nobody has $100 billion, <laughs> so we don't quite know how to do that. Uh, and, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, the last uh, climate meeting in Madrid uh, was, was pretty much a failure. And it's also why uh, the Glasgow meeting that we'll have in by December. the end of this year mm. is likely to be a failure. A lot of countries, obviously, not surprisingly, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a Ghana, some other African country, uh, to a large extent, you've signed up to this because you were hoping to get a big part of the $100 billion. <laughs> right. I would sign up to that if somebody promised to give me a significant part of 100 does anyone do no but anyway but 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 the reality of course is when they realize that they're not going to get it a lot of people are going to step out so fundamentally paris is a very ineffective treaty that will cost a lot and deliver very little and remember also most countries are not actually living up to it. So Grantham Institute, which is a very, very climate-focused institute, uh, they actually did an analysis of all the 158 countries that have legally signed up 
uh, uh, to Paris, and they found that only 17 countries are so far actually living up to it. And remember, those 17 are not you know, the US and Australia and, and uh, uh, the EU or something. It's like places like Samoa and Algeria and other countries that didn't actually promise very much. So it's not legally binding, enforceable, or verifiable. No. Okay, now it's time for Q&A. And our first question, uh, Emily, uh, comes from Doug Bandow. Doug is our, uh, our CIS scholar in residence for this year, 2020. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, which is like a, a sister think tank of CIS. And he's a former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan. Doug. Beyond, these are extraordinarily powerful intellectual arguments that you offer. But the political climate obviously looks very different. I mean, the evidence you've presented is in many ways, politicians don't seem to be doing a lot of the stupid, st really stupid stuff, but they aren't doing the smart stuff, that it's very hard to get movement. Have you found governments, agencies, interest groups who are interested in these arguments, willing to push them forward, kind of to, to help promote them? Are there folks out there who appreciate them and are using them? Yeah, so uh, we have a saying at the Copenhagen Consensus. So we work to basically further good policy in the world. Uh, and and you know, we say, it's not about getting it right. It's about getting it slightly less wrong. Right? So you know, if you can push the world to do slightly less stupid things, that's a success. Uh, and, and so on climate, I think that's exactly what we have to do. Uh, right now, as you also pointed out, the overall and overwhelming trend is to say, let's make even more absurd promises, even though we're not keeping the ones that we've already made. Uh, and, and that seems to be going on for quite a while. Uh, so no, we're not making inroads. Remember, uh, I, I basically showed you what the world's only climate economist, that's also a Nobel laureate, has shown. And nobody's listening to him because that's also an inconvenient uh, uh, point, right? So, so fundamentally, no, it's really, really hard to get through on this. However, there's two things we need to remember. One is the world is actually doing the 4.1 degree temperature, right? The basically do nothing. So we're not actually seeing this amazing amount of work. Uh, yes, the EU has cut its carbon emissions, and they have actually cut it, but remember, much of it they've just outsourced to China and elsewhere. So the fundamental point here is we're taking a lot of the cost, but we're getting none of the benefits. The second part is as things get more and more costly. So, uh, for instance, in the EU, it's expected we have, like Australia, some of the most expensive uh, electricity prices. They're expected to quadruple by 2030 if we keep all our promises. Now, at some point, quadrupling very, very high electricity prices lead to a breaking point where people say, no, no, I'm not going to take that. That's what we saw with the yellow vest in France, right? Mm -hmm. And remember, that was a 13 cents increase in gasoline prices. Mm -hmm. So at some point, and unfortunately way too late, we will actually get the feedback that, oh, wait, making more and more beautiful promises actually have real life costs and not small costs. Uh, I just want to mention one thing. I don't know if you, if you know, New Zealand, your neighbor, uh, promised to go carbon neutral by 2050. Much to their credit, they actually asked the New Zealand Institute for Economic Research, the leading uh, institution in New Zealand, to cost that promise. And they found, and this is the official estimate, they found that this would cost every year by 2050 16% of New Zealand's GDP. 16%. I, th I think this is not referenced nearly enough in yeah, any conversation. 16%. 16%. Wow. Over the century, New Zealand will spend 
5 trillion US dollars for this promise in lost GDP. And notice the benefit that they will concede, confer on the world by the end of the century will be that temperatures will be four one thousandths of a degree lower. <laughs> so the temperature that we expected on January 1st, 2100, will now only occur on January 23, 2100. We'll get to a question very soon, but following on from that, how do you account for Great Britain's success in reducing its emissions dramatically? So, uh, so a lot of people point out, look, Britain has done a lot. Uh, and they've totally cut their uh, coal-fired power, uh, and, and a lot of people believe that that's because of, uh, of renewables. It's actually mostly not. It's because they've deindustrialized, and it's because they've dramatically hiked uh, electricity and other uh, uh, energy prices. So demand has dropped dramatically, both because of the deindustrialization and because most people who are not rich can't afford it. Uh, so you know, if you make people sufficiently poor, they'll stop using all that great energy, and, and then you can live up to your, your promises. But it doesn't make for a good nation, right? It doesn't make for a good life. Next question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's plenty of disagreement out there about uh, the effect of carbon dioxide. As you know, to increase temperatures by one degree, the level of carbon dioxide has to increase by 100%. From where we are now, say 400 to 1,600, at four parts per million per year, it's going to take 300 years for the temperature to increase by two degrees. And these people are talking about uh, the temperature uh, increasing by whatever it was, 3.7, um, um, by the end of this century. I mean, there's, 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 there's something wrong there. Yes. So, um, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm a social scientist, so I simply take the UN Climate Panel uh, reports. I use their uh, climate models. Uh, one of them is the MAGIC uh, model, which is the one that I use, uh, co-funded by the US EPA and many others. Uh, so so I, I can't get into a very long conversation. It sounds to me that what you're talking about is only the impact on, on carbon dioxide. And remember, there's a three times increase uh, because of water vapor, uh, but again, I'm not a climate scientist, so I simply take what they say for given. What I'm talking about is given that if they tell us the truth, and I think they do, what are the impacts of us, both costly, as, as in what will that cost on our human societies and our in, infrastructure and our environment, and what will policies to reduce that carbon emissions cost us? So this is much more sort of what are the economic part mm. of this conversation. And I think that's an important part too. And that's the one that we but very often this don't gentleman's hear. question, I mean, the IPCC models in the 1990s were way out, linking the higher temperatures with the higher levels of emissions. Emissions have gone so, up, but the temperatures haven't gone up as fast so, as yes, the, the models yes, did yes, so. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the IPC uh, were in the high end, yes. And, and part of it was also because they expected that we weren't going to fix uh, the ozone hole, which actually is a very, very powerful okay. uh, 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 greenhouse gas. One more question on this. So, yeah. Next question. Yes, sir. I think that leads on from what you were just saying. I mean, I have to ask, what faith can we place in these models when on the strength of them 30 years ago, we were told that the Maldives would be underwater by now and that parts... And James Hansen who started this scare back in 1988. Al Gore's advisor. Exactly. Said that by now parts of New York would be underwater. Well, yes. the last time I looked, it isn't. Yeah. Um, I have to say, and, and the models have predicted a much higher level of warming than has been actually observed so far. 
Yep, so if they can't predict the existing climate, what faith can we place in them to predict a climate that might exist or might not exist 80 years from now? Yes. So there's actually, there's a good uh, article uh, published very recently in Nature that tried to estimate how well have these models done. And what they find is actually they've done a lot better than you'd think. Uh, I, I, we can quibble about that and I, I'd like to get into that. But I think the real point, and, and it's true that I, I don't know whether Hanson, he certainly said the New York thing. I don't think Hanson did the Maldives things, but a lot of people have been arguing that the Maldives will disappear under the uh, under waves because sea levels will rise. That only shows that you should listen to climate scientists when they talk about what are the model impact in 100 years. But you should not listen to them when they tell you, so what is the impact on the Maldives? They clearly have no idea. They probably haven't visited. Or if they have, they haven't done their study. There is a lot of studies on what happens uh, in Pacific Islands. And of course, the reality is that most of these uh, 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 very small islands will also grow as you see more storms. So actually, there's been, uh, there's been studies where it's, it's, we have very bad data. So it depends on when you have it. So typically, people have done uh, surveys with the first aerial uh, 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 surveys of these islands. So we've looked at Tuvalu and Micronesia, and, and not all of them, but most of the, uh, the islands, uh, Maldives, several others. So they've looked at how much land was back in whenever the first flights were that, you know, so 40, 60 years ago. And how much land is there now? And the surprising thing is all of these islands have grown in size, not decreased. Why is that? Well, because they're living things, right? They live on a coral reef. As storms come in, they break through some of the dead coral, and that coral accumulates on the island. Now, there is an important thing. So it'll grow on, this, on the place where the wind grows in, but it'll actually sink away because of sea level rise on the other side. So the islands move uh, 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 slowly. That's also why you eventually will see these atolls. Uh, they'll in, end up being a circle uh, because they'll grow outwards. So you will get a change, but you actually have more land, not less. There will be a problem because the guy who lived on the, uh, on the uh, di disappearing side will have to move, you know, many hundred meters. Uh, so that, that, is a, that is a problem, but it's not the end of the world. So again, we need, I, I don't know if you saw Time Magazine actually had Guterres, the UN uh, Secretary General, on to Lavu, uh, uh, where, where he was, you know, he's standing uh, knee, knee, knee high in water, and he ruined a perfectly good suit for no good reason, right? He was <laughs> basically saying, look, they're all going to drown, but the facts are very different. So I think we should give, the climate researchers should be part of the input because they give us the parameters. But then we need to ask social scientists and people who have actually studied the impacts what will happen when smart people deal with these kinds of impacts. That was what I tried to show you before with the sea level rise. No, with a meter sea level rise, which is on the very high end, is not going to make 187 million people disappear. It's going to make 15,000 people suffer uh, uh, flooding every year. That's a very different thing, and that comes from social Okay, science. now Max will look around for another question, and while we're finding someone, I want to ask you, Bjorn, about Australia briefly. This is the Financial Review. Australia has led the world in taking up wind and rooftop solar panels. We have emerged as the world's biggest exporter of LNG, liquefied natural gas, and, of course, the transition to gas has helped reduce emissions. Uh, add to this, Australia's met our Kyoto targets, and we're uh, on track to meet our Paris Climate Accords, according to the government. 
Given all of that, how do you account for this widespread view you often hear in Australia that Australia is somehow way behind the rest of the world on climate change action? I think it's because climate change increasingly has become about making uh, totally unrealistic promises. You know, so who can make the most ridiculous promise? Uh, I, I, I often, uh, and I, I, you've probably seen this, right? Uh, but when people start talking about going carbon neutral, you're so like, all right, then you can't really go further. But of course you can. Uh, you can go carbon negative, right? <laughs> so there's, there's, not, there's never seemingly an end to what you can promise. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about climate change is you can promise to save the world later, right? So basically, you get to be the politician who will say, I want to save the world in 2050. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be here. It's not going to be my problem. I'm not going to be financing this, but I'd like you to vote for me and applaud for me. And of course, that's a very, very uh, uh, you know, charming uh, uh, impact. So in some sense, you could argue that the reason why Australia is being the bad boy is because you're the guys who actually say, we're only going to promise what we can do, whereas a lot of other countries seemingly want to say, we're going to promise what we, you know, the highest number we can think of. Okay, next question. Greg, thank you. There's an elephant in this room, and I think it's called nuclear. Um, on the slide directly behind you, the climate policy that would work the best is innovation. Does innovation include nuclear power? Yes. So the short, short version. Remember, nuclear is not dangerous. I mean, if you look at across all the different uh, 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 energy forms, by far the most dangerous is coal-fired power. Coal fire kills a lot of people, mostly through very, very simple air pollution. Nuclear kills very, very few people. We pretty much know how to deal with long-term damage, for, uh, sorry, long-term storage of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of waste. The problem with nuclear is it's still very expensive. And unfortunately, it's getting more and more expensive. Remember, we uh, remember back in the 1960s, people were, or 50s, they were talking about how nuclear would be too cheap to meter. Uh, and that, of course, would have been a wonderful outcome. But unfortunately, costs went up. And the new power stations that are being built are typically vastly expensive. You know, so the uh, mm -hmm. Hinkley C in the UK uh, has seen you know, incredible price rises in a way uncompetitive. There's just no way you can concede the current batch of nuclear power to be anything that anyone would really want. However, there's a lot of people working on fourth generation nuclear. So these are basically the next generation of nuclear that promises to be much more safe and much, much cheaper. Now, I would love that to be the case. We should definitely invest in research on all of these different areas. I think there's a lot of promising opportunities, but I do want to point out the other three generations also told us they were going to be incredibly safe and very, very cheap, and that didn't turn out. So you know, it could be one of the solutions. The beauty of investing in uh, green energy R&D is that you can afford to invest in pretty much everything because research and development is very, very cheap. Where supporting existing ineffective technology, which is what we almost invariably do when we put up more of the same solar panels and more of the same wind turbines, is expensive. Right now, we spend about 100, this year, we'll spend $141 billion globally on, on, on uh, uh, subsidies for inefficient solar and wind. That's a bad deal. This year, also, we'll spend about $16 billion on research on all green energy forms. That's, that's backwards. 
What we should be spending is about $100 billion, but on green energy research and development, because we just need that one technology, and maybe it could be you know, the next generation nuclear power. Okay. Imagine if we could make green, uh, 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 nuclear, fourth generation nuclear, cost one cent per kilowatt hour. Not only would we fix global warming for everyone, but it would also be an amazing achievement to get a lot of cheap power to everyone on the planet. It would be an amazing achievement for humanity. But we're not there yet. We need to invest a lot okay, more in Okay, next question, Greg. Um, trying to be shorter. Sorry, yeah, uh, Fiona Ryan from Cairns. <laughs> Could, have, can I ask you to stand up because I can't see... Have you come all the way from Cairns to be here tonight? Thanks. Uh, well, I had other things to do, but... Um, <laughs> well, more power to you. <laughs> so we have a lot of, you know, like... When our boat operators, bank managers, read in the New York Times that uh, the Barrier Reef is dying, they have heart attacks, you know. And um, But I'm thinking... I mean, I, that's a, maybe a good idea. Innovation is a way to destroy the coal industry unless... You know, whatever happens, um, if that's your plan to destroy the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry is through innovation, maybe good. And um, the question. Well, what do you think about? Um, yeah, well, I'm saying, do you think you're going to destroy the coal industry, or are they going to get what uh, John Howard's chief scientist said 30 years ago, three dollars for uh, carbon capture and storage? So fundamentally, coal is going to disappear when we have cheaper alternatives. And the US is a great example of that. Yeah. Actually, you could argue that the fracking revolution that you saw in the US uh, starting in 2009 or 10 uh, dramatically changed the world in a way that real good climate policy should do. It made gas much cheaper than coal, and it basically outcompeted somewhere between 10 and 20 percentage points of coal. That is how you do it, make coal uncompetitive because you have a much better technology. Not because you have a more subsidized technology, but I have a much better technology. Mm. The US has been leading the world in cutting carbon emissions. It's actually cut more carbon emissions than any other nation in this, in, sorry, It's in a the very last important decade. point to bear in mind because President Trump cops a lot of criticism for pulling the United States out of the Paris Accords. Your point is that US emissions are coming down under his presidency thanks to the shale fracking revolution. And under Obama. I don't, and under Obama I, it, as well. It was not because of Obama. <laughs> it was not because of Trump. It was because of Shall. technology. Te technological uh, so, revolution. So again, the yeah. point here is this is not a partisan conversation. This is about being smart. And hopefully that's mm. not a, you know, a Republican or Democrat trait. Mm. Or it, it shouldn't be. Uh, it, okay. it should be about us all finding the smart ways forward. Right? So if we could get China fracking, we would get a lot of climate benefits very, very quickly. If we could get similar kind of breakthroughs, but not from coal to gas, but from gas to non or, or, or zero carbon emissions, okay. we would have fixed global Okay, warming. final question. Yes, thank you. Adrian. Okay, um, so with the data that you have shown us so far, I would like to know what makes a climate model reliable and how can you convince fence sitters or people who are so uncertain that climate change is a real issue, that the evidence is strong and we need to do something. Yes. So I, th I think there's a, a number of different steps to this. So uh, as we talked about before, if you look at the uh, climate models that we've done back from 1970s and 80s, if you actually adjust them to the inputs that were, you know, so the actual emissions, they have done pretty well. They've not been amazing, but they've done pretty well. And I, I certainly think we can use them as a way to sort of 
guide what should we be doing. But I think crucially, and that's, what, that's the argument that I've been trying to do tonight, that you can't just have this conversation as if climate scientist is the only word on this point. Partly because they just talk about the climate system, but the climate system interfaces with people, it interfaces with our economy. And that's where the real damage is going to happen. So you also got to look at the, uh, uh, the impact on the economy. Of course, you also need to know something about the Maldives. So you need a lot of other information. So we got to get away from this conversation where we only listen to climate scientists because they will tell you, here's a problem. The right way to fix it is to cut carbon emissions. If we lived in a world where that had no other cost, that would be right. But we don't live in that world. We live in a world where it has real cost to cut carbon. And actually, the impacts from climate change are much lower than you would normally think because we adapt. And so you need to look at the real estimates from both sides, both the climate system and the economic system. That's what William Nordhaus has done. That's what he got the Nobel Prize mm. from. And again, just so you don't think that this is just one crazy guy, right? I mean, he got the Nobel Prize, so he's probably not totally crazy. But a lot of people have been doing this work, and a lot of people are annoyed they didn't get the Nobel Prize. But the fundamental point here is lots of people have done a lot of these models, and they all show pretty much the same. You should do something, but not too much. Because if you do a little, you can actually make the world better. If you do a lot, which is what a lot of you know, well-meaning people will say if they don't think too hard, they will say, we should do all, everything, we should cut everything. You forget that there will also be real costs to cutting carbon emissions, and those costs will be much, much bigger. And that's why there's a real risk that we can get that 0.4% benefit if we do it really smartly, but we can very easily end up making the world about 5% worse off. But the fundamental point, what, what, what I want you to take away, I know, know you want to wrap up, is just to remember that no matter how badly or how well we do this, global warming is not going to be the major part of the world. That was the point of you know, the 90, 97% of the world is going to be about happy children, getting education, getting good health care, being able to go on vacations, doing all kinds of other stuff. That's the welfare that matters. This is simply a question about do we do a little good or a lot of bad? I, I personally think we should do a little good. Okay, Bjorn, thank you. And now it's time to call on my colleague and fellow CIS board member, Alison Watkins, to do the vote of thanks. Alison. Thanks very much, and I think uh, everyone here tonight, Bjorn, would be thinking just how fortunate and how timely this conversation is, um, really, to have such a distinguished thought leader with us and really helping us step back and look at this issue through less passionate eyes than um, the current debate promotes. It's such an intense time and such a topical issue for us obviously with the fires and the floods um, and uh, the strong desire that we all feel to do something and then I think um, the behaviour that we see that that creates where uh, the promises um, that everybody wants to make just keep upping the ante on us all and um, the debate really does feel devoid of facts. So to have you here tonight and to equip us all 
with the facts and the ability to think about this in a more balanced way, I think it's just been uh, an incredible, timely privilege for us all. So I think to really um, particularly put climate change in the context, the historical context, and, and really to be able to reflect and understand um, what we're seeing now um, actually is, is, is not a heightened level of climate change when you look at it across a period of time. To think also about um, not only the, the costs of, of addressing climate change, um, but to think about the costs of those policies themselves is something that I think is incredibly helpful and to appreciate the, um, the massive costs of intervention um, and to line those up against the kind of promises that are being made now where, um, as we heard the New Zealand example, and that's something that's being actively debated here to, by 2050 to go to net zero emissions, something that a number of companies are promising. Um, I think it's really important that we are playing a role, all of us, in, in challenging that kind of thinking, not just leaving it to people like you. Um, you're incredibly articulate and engaging, and I'm sure, certainly, um, uh, I speak for myself, um, it's, it's a daunting thing to, to take on um, the zealotry that, that we do here, but I think we all have um, a role to play in that and we all have the opportunity to do that much more uh, articulately um, because of the facts that you've given us and um, the ability at least to ask questions of those who are posing uh, these um, uh, absurd promises, as you put it. So thank you very, very much. Um, I think uh, we at, we at CIS, um, we do um, really uh, benefit so much from having someone like you who's had a long association with us as a centre. I remember seeing you um, give the speech uh, probably back in 2012, we decided, and, and had a huge impact on me, as I'm sure um, your thinking has had an impact on everyone in the room tonight. So we really are very, very grateful. And so on behalf of the CIS, um, all of our friends and supporters who are here tonight, our sincere thanks. Bjorn, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.